Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Good Grief. My name is Dr. Christine Malone, and in this podcast, we talk about trauma, tragedy, and survival. In each episode, I will interview someone that has gone through grief in some way, and we will discuss the impact it has had on their life. By sharing these stories, we hope that others won't feel alone should they be going through similar situations. Enjoy. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. My guest today is going to share with us her experience um, as a, her journey um, as from an abusive childhood and how she's gotten to where she is today. So guest, would you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Judy Foreman. I am a journalist. I've been uh, a journalist at the Boston Globe and a health columnist for many years. And now I'm writing books. I've just written my fifth, which I think we will talk about. Yes. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. So yeah. thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm so happy for you to be here. Be here. Um, so tell us a bit about kind of where you started with your journey from the childhood, you know, just a bit about, you know, what kind of things did you go through and, and, and then we'll move into where you are now and how you, how you're helping pe other people with what you do now. Sure. Um, so I, I grew up in a middle-class house. It didn't look like an abusive house we think would look like, although the message I've learned from all this is that you can't tell from the outside what's going on on the inside. Um, my father was um, a very, uh, su very successful businessman. He was a vice president of a company, one of the U.S. major corporations. You would all know it. I'm positive. Uh, he was a very Trumpian character, very narcissistic, abusive, verbally abusive, uh, angry all the time bossy nobody mattered except him um and my mother was uh i think she was sort of spunky when she was growing up she was kind of like the son her father always wanted but she was emotionally uh totally not there um for me and i'm i'll get into the my father's abuse but thinking back in some ways the the neglect and the um sort of phobia about feelings what, from that I got from my mother has been more difficult to deal with. The absence of love, real deep love and communication from her has been really hard. So in terms of my father, um, he would come, when I was a teenager, he would come into my, off, into my um, bedroom every night. Um, I could hear his footsteps coming down the hall. I would freeze. If I thought he was far enough away, I would turn my light off and pretend that I was already asleep. He would open the door and he was wearing only a t-shirt. So everything else was hanging out. And um, it terrified me uh, because every night I thought I was gonna get raped. Um, and it was like, I don't know if you've heard the term mock execution, but sometimes terrorists um, have a, a hostage and they pretend like in front of the guy's wife to shoot him. They don't actually shoot him, but the terror induced by this threat is huge. So that was what it was like for me. It was like a mock execution. Was he going to rape me that night or the next night? Um, he was also an alcoholic and I think very depressed. He would sit at the dinner table and tell us how how wonderful we were as a family, but in total tears. And everybody was afraid of him. We walked around on eggshells around him all the time. Um so I grew up terrified of him and afraid to go to sleep. I had insomnia because I did not want to be surprised. What if he came into my room? What if he got on top of me? What if I couldn't breathe? What if he actually raped me? Um, 
So there was a lot of anxiety. Um, but I didn't know it. I mean, you know, when you're in that situation, what you're in is normal as a child. All you know is the emotional world that you're in. Um, if someone had asked me as a teenager, are you being abused at home? I would say, what do you mean? I mean, no one's hitting me. Um, so what, it's just surprising how, how you just assume that what you're experiencing is normal. And it's not, in my case, it wasn't until I was um, an exchange student for a summer with a Danish family that, you know, I lived with them and they, they were happy. Nobody got drunk. Nobody was abusive. They laughed at the dinner table instead of cowered. Um, there was no fear. I mean, it was so weird. Um, and it was sort of, sort of the beginning of opening my eyes to what I was really living with, uh, that not everyone came home to an angry father. Um, not everyone tiptoed around their father. Um, some people actually felt close to their mothers, could trust their mothers. Um, so there was a lot, a lot of learning after I sort of got out. Um, I was really lucky in that I went to a women's college. I went to Wellesley. Hmm. And it was the first time that um, I feel like I had value as a woman or actually in spite of being a woman. Um, you know, I was not expected to do anything or be anything. And this was the old days. Um but it was really nice to have my thoughts matter, my my work matter, my studies matter for what I was producing, you know, and I wasn't a guy. Um, so that was very enlightening. And then, um, let's see, I married my college sweetheart and we went in the Peace Corps in Brazil, which was great. Um, we had a son there who is also great. Um, but when, once we got back, we were really too immature to be married actually. So we sort of, we, um, we got divorced, but it was very amicable. Um, and the what happened during that sort of breaking up process was um, I became very good friends with one of his former college roommates who helped me get a job at a small paper, small newspaper near Boston called the Lowell Sun. And so I became a journalist and it, I loved it right away. It was just, it was me, I'm very extroverted and I got to talk to people. And I had done well in college because I was a writer. I loved writing papers and stuff. So journalism was a fabulous uh, stumble into a good thing. And I, I feel lucky be because, yeah, it was perfect for me. And a lot of people don't have a perfect fit with their work. And work is takes up so much of your life and is so important for your sense of meaning and well-being and self-esteem and all that, that... Um, that, that was all great for me, even more important. And if there's a take home message for everybody listening, this I think would be it was journalism was really a search for the truth. And, you know, after not being able to even realize the truth in my family of what was going on, to be able to go out and get the truth and figure it out and figure out what was true, what wasn't true, to have it on the front page, I could tell the truth. I was paid to tell the truth. Yeah. Um, and paid to tell the truth, uh, speaking truth to power. Um, so it was it was a great career. Um, and I feel very lucky to have to have discovered journalism. So um, Fantastic. that's sort of where we are. So tell me a bit. I know I'm, I shared with you before we started recording that I also had um, 
uh, a, a yucky childhood, including a mother that sounds much like yours, very uh, detached, definitely not an emotional person. I don't remember her ever telling me she loved me, for example, right. in all my years. And so I personally struggled with when I was a parent. So how how did that affect you at all when you had your own child to say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a role model. I don't know what it's like to be a, a loving, caring, hugging, whatever mother to my child. I had to kind of think about it. And in, in my case, uh, I still am not comfortable with a lot of, of hugging and so on. So I have to consciously in my mind say, did you tell that kid that you love them? Did you give them a hug before they leave? I have to remind myself because it doesn't come back mm. to me. So I'm just curious if that was anything like your experience. That, that was not my experience exactly, but um, perhaps because my father actually, the name of the chapter that I talked about, was he never touched me because he didn't. The threat was always there. Uh, so the anxiety and the, uh, the fear and everything was always there. But no, in fact, I've had very, very huggy relationships with I, on my third marriage. My, my first husband and I got divorced. My second husband died of prostate cancer about 17 years ago. And now I'm with my third husband. And I, I do have a message on that when we get to that. But um, no, they've all been very physically healthy and um, warm, very cuddly relationships. And I, you know, I remember I nursed my son and I loved that. That was just wonderful. Um, emotionally, I think I tried to get to his feelings and ask about his feelings. Um, even doing kind of like a type of play therapy, like we had a dog named Teddy Bear. And I would say, Teddy Bear, how's Teddy Bear feeling? Teddy Bear's a little sad. Why is Teddy Bear sad? And, you know, trying to elicit his feelings, you know, because my mother was so the opposite. She could not do feelings. And that's been very hard for me to deal with because it makes me scared of my own feelings. It has made me scared of my own feelings, yeah. which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, extremely common, extremely common. As I'm sure you really? know for people who yeah. survive things like, especially with a, I, I, you made the comment about neglect being a form of abuse. And I completely yeah. agree with that and, and know that, um, yeah, that is, uh, it's been, it's, it's a hard thing to, to go through. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't neglect like, you know, I was clothed and fed right. no, no. and all yeah. that. Emotional kind of, yeah. Emotional, yes. She, I think she couldn't tolerate her own feelings. Um, Probably. Probably. You know, there's a legacy part of all this. Yeah, it's probably that, what do they call it now? Generational trauma, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's yeah. But one thing I would like to say to everybody listening, um, you know, I've, I'm on my third marriage and I had a lot of therapy. My, my, I'm a very pro-therapy message here. But um, as I've gotten healthier and healthier psychologically, I've picked better men, men more and more capable of intimacy which is interesting, I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm very, my husband and I now have just a very close, intimate relationship. We share everything and we're very supportive of each other. And we do fight sometimes. <laughs> I don't want to make it seem like it's not real. Um, but the degree of intimacy we have now, I could not have had when I was 18 year old, 18 years old with my first husband. I mean, it's taken a lot of therapy to be able to do that after what I grew up with. Yeah, so it's vulnerable. I think that's a positive yeah. message. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely vulnerable. I know in in, in my yeah. case, I grew up with um, <clears throat> what I call my need to know thing. I would only tell people what they needed to know rather than share the full spectrum of things, including how I was feeling, because I was always worried that that would be used against me. So yeah. 
yeah, with, with, with therapy, again, I'm pro therapy too, had to learn that, you know, part of an intimate relationship is being able to share things, even things you're scared to share. And that I didn't get right. to my third marriage either. So uh, you and I had that in common as well. I, I just, yeah, it was really, it was really kind of a thing that had to, to evolve over time. So tell yeah. me about your writing and your five books. So, um, I, I know a bit about them, but uh, tell us, our, tell our listeners, you know, kind of what your books are about, what your audience is, kind of why you were inspired sure. to write. Um, I was a feature writer at the Boston Globe for a while, and then I became a science writer, which was great. Um, so the first two books are about chronic pain. Um, the hardback, which is my first uh, first book, is called A Nation in Pain. And um, I love that book because it talks about um, the huge, there's like a hundred million Americans who live in chronic pain. Not all of them are disabled by it, but it's a significant fact for a lot of people. And pe people, especially women, are often dismissed. Their women's pain is really dismissed, even though in a lot of ways they have more of it. Um, and it makes me crazy that this whole focus, we've had a huge focus on the opioid epidemic, <clears throat> which is horrible and people die. But also horrible is chronic pain and we pay no attention to that. And chronic pain patients uh, in the last, I don't know, 10 or so years since the war on opioids, a lot of chronic pain patients need opioids, do not abuse them and would be suicidal without them. And they're having a very hard time getting them. So I am very sympathetic to them because the government, the CDC had for a while had very strict standards for who could prescribe uh, opioids. A lot of doctors left the field. They were scared to, uh, to treat patients with that medication. And obviously that's not the only way to treat pain, but right. for people who need it and benefit from it, it can be life-saving. And um, all the attention, despite my efforts, and there were a lot of them, have been on the abuse of opioids rather than the, you know, getting opioids to people who really need them. So yeah. that was the first two books. Um, and then the third one is kind of a favorite. It's called Exercise is Medicine. And it goes into a lot of, it's very readable. I reread it at times myself. Um, but it goes into a lot of the scientific reasons why exercise is so good for you, especially for your brain. Um, you, when you exercise, your brain actually pumps out a chemical called we don't want to know, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, but just think of it as miracle grow for the brain. It really makes neurons grow, makes nerve cells grow. And that has a good effect on thinking, on cognition, and a good effect on mood. And the data is huge. There are mountains of data on that. Um, then I wrote a novel called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R apostrophe D, um, which was a medical thriller. Um, and it's based on this uh, new thing. People may have heard of CRISPR. It's a gene editing technique that is very powerful. And people really know the term a lot by now. Uh, it has the potential to cure a lot of genetic diseases, um, but it can also be used malevolently. So I invented an evil geneticist and uh, he gets outed by a young reporter for the Boston Globe, much like myself, <laughs> who uh, wins a Pulitzer for discovering what he was doing to babies, which was bad. And then my fifth book is this memoir, Let the More Loving One Be Me. Um, and uh, that is now on Amazon as of a couple of weeks ago. And it, it is a memoir, which, so all three different types of writing, um, 
but uh, the memoir is obviously very personal and um, people have told me they've read it in one sitting uh, that, you know, I didn't think my life was that thrilling, but um, <laughs> people have told me they can't put it down. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, yeah. I've actually heard that about my book too. My book isn't very long, but um, yeah, it's just people want to know how did it end. <laughs> yeah, like, really. Oh, I'm still here. <laughs> You're, um, your uh, mystery one reminds me of that movie Gattaca. And I'm sure you've probably seen that word. So everybody's like, um, they they take out all of the unfavorable things, like you don't need glasses and so on and, and all that. And so having a natural baby is is bad and, and stuff. Like that's much, first thing I thought of when I, when you were telling me about your book is, is that movie. Yeah, yeah. And that whole thought process of, are we going to go there? Or what, what you know, what right. are we Right, it raises have, a lot of questions. Yeah, are we all going to have bl blonde hair and blue eyes, or what, what's the what's what's right, going to be exactly. the most favorable? I mean, personally, I'd love to see us get rid of cancers and heart disease and yes. all these ugly things. That would be fantastic. But I, I I think your book might be a little more accurate. I think there'd be uh, bad pe bad people using it for their own their own gain. So yeah. Yes. Tell me a bit about, I know you do some advocacy for helping uh, child abuse survivors. So what does that entail and kind of, you know, is that part of your writing for the Globe or what are you doing? Oh, well, I don't actually do advocacy for child abuse survivors. I've written about it. Right. Um, and in my book, I have, uh, I, you know, my book has a lot of um, sort of factual stuff, like each chapter, like after the chapter about abuse, I have a lot of statistics on um, how common sexual abuse of children and adolescents is. But I don't, um, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not in a group of, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be a therapist or anything like that. I mean, my work is basically as a journalist. Yeah. Um, even even writing that part about. Uh, oh, I mean, I if you're know. interested, I have some of these statistics. If you're not, that's fine. It's yeah, it's 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 um, unfortunately it is it is far too common, far too common. So I'm curious to know if you have we have a, if we had a listener um, for this episode that was kind of has come out of you know, some traumatic things as a child, whether it's, you know, emotional neglect or whatever it might be. Um, and they're struggling and like in your earlier, earlier relationships when you were really young and you were, you know, the whole not, not being know what, what intimacy, emotional intimacy was all about, you know, what advice would you give? What, what, what road would you say to start down anything along those lines? I am a big advocate of psychotherapy. Um, I've had di many different kinds and the one I have been using the most in the, in recent years um, is in my mind by far the best. I've tried the cognitive behavioral throat approach and just regular talking therapy. Um, and I, I the thing that's really important, I think, is to really look inside. I mean, a lot of people are scared to, including me. Um, you know, it's the I think it takes an awful lot of courage to really face the truth of one's own past and one's own feelings. And it can take ages to try to uncover those feelings. Um, and the, the therapy that I would recommend most to people is called internal family systems therapy. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but it's, not. it's increasingly popular. I mean, it's not that different from regular psychotherapy. Um, but you learn to, like, if you get very angry, you sort of learn to separate a little bit from the angry, not sort of be in it, but sort of look at it very sympathetically with a lot of compassion. Like, so why am I angry? What, what's what's going on? Um, but with a gentle heart kind of, and say, yeah, you know, I'm really hurt. He did this to me, you know, and he just walked out of the room while I was talking or something. 
um, you know, that's not good. That's not right. And you sort of pay attention to the feelings, but with a certain amount of inner wisdom or Buddhism or something. Um, and that's incredibly helpful. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a hard kind of therapy to describe because it sounds so jargony, but it's very helpful, when, especially when you look at what they call your exiled parts, the parts you've repressed in more Freudian terms, um, the, the parts you don't want to go to, the parts you can't quite remember, um, but they're there and they influence your behavior and they influence your feelings and your mood and your, your mental health. Um, and the more you delve into them and help them heal, they can heal, um, the better you are and the better you feel. So I am a huge advocate of that. And also a lot of people get some benefit from journaling um, and talking to friends and learning who to trust and not to trust. And for people like me who also grew up in an alcoholic family, for years I went to adult children of alcoholics, which is incredibly helpful. Um, you see patterns um, that you wouldn't see. You think, oh yeah, I fit that pattern. That's yeah. really true. That really happened. Uh, and that's that's very validating. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So uh, internal family therapy systems. Is that what you said? No, internal family systems. Oh, systems. Okay, therapy. got it. I, IFS. Okay, gotcha. And when you say family, does that, can a, a person, individual, uh, seek out that type of It's therapy? actually, the idea is like you have different parts of your family incorporated into yourself. Like my sort of so anxious, punitive part is often my mother, has often come from my mother. Maybe the angry part comes from my father. So it's not quite that linear or rigid, but um, I think there's a website either for internal family systems or maybe it's called the Center for Self-Leadership. I mean, the idea is you have sort of a centered self and we all kind of know when we're in a centered spot and when we're kind of, you know, over-revved or riled up in an excessive way. Um, I'm not doing a great sales job, but it's a very no. helpful no. it's it, It's especially helpful in couples therapy because you can sort of realize oh you know he's mad at me but he's not really that's not coming from his centered place he's just pissed off or you know yeah, um right. so it can be very helpful for that yeah no it's great i i will do some research on it one when, when we're done talking today because i'm fascinated by it. i've never heard of it so yeah um is there anything else you'd like to share before we end our episode anything that um you know comes to mind that you want to share with listeners Just that the search for your own emotional truth is very difficult, but totally worth it. Absolutely, totally worth it. I mean, for all the work work I've done in my jobs, um, those are a piece of cake. I could do that with one arm type. The hard work is figuring out yourself, but that's where it's at. Yeah. That's totally where it's at. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree with that. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. I appreciate thank you. It. I've enjoyed it myself. Thank yeah, you. And I'm looking forward to uh, researching this uh, IFS and checking out your books. So yes. thank you. Oh, yeah. Let me give it's called. Uh, oh, you can't see it. Let the more loving one be me by Judy Foreman. And um, it's Foreman, by the way, in case people don't know, is F-O-R-E-M-A-N. So people, if you spell it wrong, you won't find it on Amazon. But if wow. you spell it right, you will. 
well, we'll get links to when we post your your um, episode. Yeah. Links. So okay, great. Find you a whole lot easier than having to just go out on, on a blind search. So we make it easy. Right, exactly. Okay, All thank right. you. Good luck to you, too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Good Grief. To hear more about my personal story, please pick up a copy of my book, The Day I Became the Spider Killer, a memoir of trauma, tragedy, and survival, available in paperback, Kindle, and Audible via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online book retailers.